This podcast was created and is hosted by a young survivor of stroke. This podcast series is part of Stroke Foundation's Young Stroke Project. Find out more by visiting youngstrokeproject.org.au. Welcome to From the Pillow, Survival Mode. In this podcast special, you'll meet Sue Bowden. Sue was living a full life. She was happily married, pregnant with her first child and training to be a nurse. However, she could sense that something wasn't quite right. She'd had issues with her health and after visiting her GP, her concerns were dismissed. And she was just told, that's what comes with being pregnant. Little did she know, the events over the next month would change her life. Over two episodes, Sue is joined by David Cumming, life coach and counsellor at mindmyself.net. Sue and David are great friends. They're always walking and talking together to stay emotionally and physically well. Sue opens up to David about her stroke experience, from being dismissed by her doctor to being in near-death altered states and learning to communicate again, as well as reflecting on what she learned throughout her stroke experience and the importance of surrounding yourself with support. This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri and Wiradjuri land. Stroke Foundation acknowledges the traditional owners as well as traditional owners throughout Australia. This podcast discusses themes that might be distressing to some people, including historical sexual assault and the loss of a baby. Stroke Line is available Monday to Friday, 9am to 5pm, Australian Eastern Standard Time. Call them on 1800 787 653. That's 1800 787 653. Or you can email strokeline at strokefoundation.org.au. Lifeline is also available for crisis support 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Call 13 11 14 or visit lifeline.org.au. So Sue, strokes usually come out of the blue. Tell me about what life was like before you had your stroke. That would have been the year of 1993. Mm. So that's coming up almost, that's 30 years next year. Wow. I've been married for about 18 months. I was studying, training to be a state enrolled nurse and almost to the end of my training. And I was five months pregnant and uh, I wasn't particularly well mm. in my pregnancy. I think there was a lot of stress at the time. I we were young, we were newly married. It was 1993, so in terms of what was going on in life in general, we'd been through a recession, things mm. were a bit tight there. I was, I think, a little bit stressed about everything, but, you know, young and hopeful for the future. What happened when you had your stroke? How did it happen? Yeah, like I said, I was five months pregnant. I'd been to my GP to get checked just to raise my concerns. My GP was a little bit dismissive of me along the lines of, well, you're pregnant. What do you expect? I was still a bit concerned. So as he um, as he opened the door to send me on my way, he said, but while you're in here, we'll get you up on the table and give you an internal examination. And I was none the wiser as to what to expect at that time. So I agreed to that, Acquiesce. did what he said. Acquiesced. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Examination was done and I spent the next uh, eight to ten days in extreme discomfort and mm. pain and didn't tell anybody what had happened because I was so embarrassed and ashamed that... Um, I'd been sort of invaded in, during pregnancy. A lot of people around me noticed that I was continuing to blob like a balloon. I gained a lot of fluid. I developed eclampsia, so that came on with a 
a headache that I couldn't shake. I presented in the early hours of the morning at our local hospital uh, with this headache that wouldn't go away. On initial examination, it was suggested that I had indigestion and I was offered my lanta. Very helpful, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, not very helpful. Mm, no, right. promptly vomited that myelanta back up. The suggestion was made, oh, well, we still think it's indigestion. You can go home. But something inside of me that had woken me up at 2 o'clock in the morning said, no, no, this is more serious. Something's not right. So I provided a urine sample, which was solid protein, which meant that I had an extreme case of preeclampsia. Then I had to wait around until the morning when the obstetrician came on to assess me as to whether or not to be shipped off to Melbourne by a road ambulance or helicopter. The assessment was made that no, it was going to take the helicopter too long to get to my hometown in regional northeast Victoria to take me to Melbourne. So I went by road ambulance. 20 minutes after I got to hospital, I had seizures, which meant that you know my life was in danger. The assessment was that... Um, my pregnancy needed to be terminated and my ex-husband needed to sign those consent forms. It's very stressful. It was. Mm. It was really mm. traumatic. Our baby, Chelsea, was stillborn and uh, I stayed in the hospital for the next 10 days and recovered as much as I could and then went home to northeast Victoria and buried her. And then what happened was that I was just so stressed out by everything. I just wanted to get out of town and made the suggestion to go to Phillip Island just to for a break, break away. During that breakaway, I noticed that I was trying to read something, read a book, and all the words were moving all over the page. So this sounded like another fork in the road or another turn that was unexpected. An indication that something was wrong, but I didn't, I didn't know that. Continuing on that day, I was just walking down the main street and I said to my ex-husband, Stop, you need to call the doctor, I've got a headache. That headache thing felt like a thump in the base of my brain. If I could describe it, it was like bubble wrap popping, starting at my forehead and moving through my brain, through my head. And very quickly, my function deteriorated. So something chaotic was unfolding. Yeah, I had no idea it was a stroke. I just knew it was serious and I had vivid memories of near-death experiences of that time at like mm. a choice a choice I could either stay here or I could go and what did that look like that looked like I've got to hang on mm. I've got to hang on here and just stay <laughs> just stay so it wasn't time to go no it wasn't time to go mm. So following on from that, an ambulance was called. I presented at the Phillip Island Hospital and by that stage I really I could barely talk and my gait was really wobbly. I had no balance and my strength was going. But I was just sort of observed. There seemed to be no panic about the situation, even though my function was deteriorating More very quickly. any urgency about responding in a controlled and orderly fashion. Yes, mm. yes. Because when the ambulance turned up and uh, they said to my ex-husband, like the paramedic said to my ex-husband, what's she taken? So it was immediately assumed that my presentation was like, I'd taken something, drugs-wise. Yes, that's right. So that I was quite scared about that because I thought by the time I get to hospital, that will have been relayed to the hospital, but the paramedics had thought, well, what's happening here? What's she taken? And jumped to the wrong conclusion. That's right. right. And I think 
For me, as a young person, that's an important part of the story because it still happened in in most recent past. I've heard of stories, so I just would like to say that's a highlighter for me, not to jump to conclusions. Yes, absolutely. See and observe and understand or watch closely. Yes. Watch for the sign. Yes. The stroke was happening, essentially. What, What happened next? I was helicoptered from Phillip Island to Melbourne and... Some time had passed. It was over 24 hours until I presented at the right hospital. There was a bit of hospital hopping (laughs) to get me to the right hospital Mm. to check other things because I so recently had preeclampsia. I got to the Royal Melbourne Hospital. All I remember at this stage was uh, not much, but aware that I was in different environments, if that makes sense, just Mm. aware of being shuffled. Sue, in and amongst the transferring between hospitals and and the attempt to get an accurate diagnosis, was there anything else happening for you? Yes, I just seemed to be uh, experiencing strange phenomenon like near-death experiences is what I describe them, like floating just below the ceiling and observing what was happening below Another one where I was just lying on a bed covered up with a pink blanket and I couldn't move because I would knock a baby off the bed if I moved. And these things were memories. They're so vivid. So when I eventually came out of ICU, which I think I was in there for about six days, they were on the top of my list of things that I wanted to express, but I couldn't. Quite amazing visions and strange dreams happenings that you weren't able to share with anyone that's right yes and so what was that like then as you came to consciousness in that bed in the ICU so I was moved out of ICU into a regular ward and when I opened my eyes and saw people I knew my family at the end of the bed it was like looking through a telescope they were on an island they was they seemed so far away Mm. I was just aware that, you know, I knew who I was. I knew what had happened. I was looking at all these gadgets around me that I was attached to, like a drip. Everything was white. I could tell I was in a bed. I could tell I was in a hospital bed because of the silver rails. And, uh, however, I couldn't communicate anything. Mm, so you felt very separate from, from them and, and from the world, really. Yes. Yeah, I was where there was no movement in my body, I was just, I was thinking about, okay, what can I feel that is myself? What can I feel? Aware of the shape, but not able to move anything. So you really just had your, your sight and did you have any hearing at that stage? I could I could hear everybody mm. still sounded so far away as well. Mm. So I looked far away and sounded far away. And I felt just hot, exhausted, flattened. I just felt very sick. When did someone come and start filling you in on what had happened? I was aware that when I opened my eyes that there was a great flurry about, oh, she's opened her eyes. The next part I remember was that people seemed to be looking at me to um, ascertain how that they could communicate with me. And I had you know, so much going on in my head that I want to say, I'm here, I know who you are, I know what happened. But I wasn't able to communicate that. So it was suggested that I reply, I communicate through blinking, yes or no, blinking one for yes and two for no. So I was able to answer questions like, do you know who you are? Do you know who we are? 
that gave me a bit of hope that, oh, there'll be more effort into helping me understand or help you know, communicating with me. Uh, communicating was my priority over moving, actually. So there was a means of interacting with the, with the people around you, but a very finite means. You know, there was a, a great loss of ability, of your abilities that you'd had right up until the moment before the stroke, really. Yes. Mm-hmm. I seem to visualise a lot, uh, use my memory a lot to remind myself who I was. Like, I, okay, I need to hang on here, but I need to hang on to who I know I am and why that's important. And this was especially important for me to continue remembering our baby that we just buried and all the circumstances surrounding that because I didn't know how I was ever going to bring up what happened with my doctor uh, just prior. So in this face of great physiological change, you really, really wanted to maintain a sense of self and history. You know, history or historicity, so to speak. That's right. Like, mm. remember who I was. It might have been a, a few days until I was told that I'd had a stroke. Right, yeah. And what were your impressions on hearing that? Okay, so I had a stroke support person mm. and she would come and make efforts, more efforts with communicating with me. Uh, my communication moved on from blinking to receiving a a four sheet of paper in a plastic sleeve and on that plastic sleeve were the type letters of the alphabet and also the numbers. My stroke support person would come and sit beside me and she was the one to tell me that I'd had a stroke. And uh, I think it's fair to say that I had been a trainee enrolled nurse working in a nursing home, so stroke was a, a familiar term to me. Mm. I'd worked with people who had had strokes did stroke mean to you prior to experiencing one? It effectively was something that affected older people. Mm. However, in our training, we saw a movie which made um, a big impact on me and how I viewed stroke. And that was of a young woman in America in her 30s and she had had a stroke and it was all about her recovery. So once I was told I had a stroke, I was like, okay, well, I'm young, but it's not, um, it might be uncommon, but it's not a one-off. Yeah, so you were an exception to what society would have assumed was the rule, that strokes happen to old people and that strokes, I guess you were conscious that strokes were perceived to be, commonly perceived to be debilitating and, and you know, people didn't recover terribly fully from them. I don't know that I took on board that I wouldn't recover. Uh, recovery is such a, a broad term as far as I look at it go, because I'm, it's coming up 30 years and I still feel like I'm in recovery. I'm able to recover. So a feeling that you have more potential yet to yes. to show, to demonstrate. Yes, because it was, uh, yes, a long journey between that bed and now and uh, there was lots of work involved. I guess as far as young people go, I would just like to get the message out there that, yes, young people can have strokes, do have strokes. Every stroke is different and affects everybody differently. And that is because we're all all different people to begin with. We're all our own people to begin with. I was very aware that I wanted to be treated as me, if that makes sense. So you wanted the you to be seen within the stroke, not just that you were a series of clinical circumstances. That's exactly right. So 
I'd like to include in this podcast uh, one of my poems and I only recently started writing poetry probably about five years ago just as a way of expression for that period of time in my life where I wasn't able to express. So it's been a very, very therapeutic process. And uh, one of these poems is very reflective of being from the pillow. So I'll just get into it and read it. It's called, And Then I Remembered to Breathe. Crushing, a weighted blanket of pain, returning to nothingness, space, no connection, adrift, lungs holding life, and then I remembered to breathe. Moments, creating memories, climbing to see beyond the present, just a peak over the edge, holding on, forwards, backwards, around, through, time seizes, breathless, possibilities creep beyond, bringing just a little colour, enough to connect, repairing, removing, inhaling, exhaling, breath. You had that stroke and how was that stroke treated? How did they respond? Okay, so I happen to know that I was very lucky to receive some new treatment as far as clot dissolving goes. So by the time I got to the right hospital, as I've mentioned, it was over 24 hours and I needed to have an MRI scan to determine that I had blockage of clot in the brainstem. And there happened to be a doctor on in the emergency room that night and he was actually running a trial of a clot dissolving drug. I fitted the criteria for receiving this drug and I was told that that drug had completely dissolved the clot in my brainstem, which in the medical professional's eyes was an amazing thing. It didn't mean that the, there hadn't been damage done. Like it was very evident when I woke up that there would have been a lot of damage done but my life had been saved and I had the potential to recover. As difficult as everything was, and it was very difficult, I really took that to heart. It's like I've been given an opportunity here mm. to live and I might not have lived and I might have gone into a nursing home and I might have, all these bad things might have happened, but they didn't. No, and that shaped your attitude and, and your recovery. It did shape my attitude. Yes, I had a good attitude. However, it, it didn't mean that I had lots of pain underneath. But at the time, that attitude to stay alive and look at that amazing timing because I just felt amazed that I was able to receive that treatment. So that's what got me through. Yeah, so you got through, you survived, and they were able to, I guess, stem the ongoing damage that might have been caused by that clot staying in place. That's right. I can fast forward here a bit to when I came back into awareness of the Stroke Foundation only five or six years ago now, and there was, a, I guess, in stroke education and treatment, I became aware of a window of four hours Treatment needs to happen within four hours. And I was a little bit gobsmacked that what happened to me in 25 hours, what would have happened to me if that time frame 
had existed back then. Yeah, so if it had all happened a lot more quickly, the response and the diagnosis. Yes, mm. or just that if someone hadn't gone out of their way to give me the treatment full stop, what would then have happened? That's where I was, that's where my mind went. The mm. fact that if I had been able to receive treatment earlier, I, I didn't go there because it didn't happen. Um, I'm just uh, grateful that uh, the treatment that I received has shaped the future of stroke treatment and uh, is, mm. is well recognised in that area. Mm. Yeah, and there's a lot more investment in fast response and, um, and treatment of stroke now as well within our, our emergency services and yes. first response. Yeah. Mm. That's right. Mm. So, so you made it through that immediate life or death survival episode Yes. You've had near-death experiences during that. You've woken up in bed. What was that initial recovery period like, and that, that being in bed, and, and what were your thoughts from, from the pillow, as we say? Oh, from the pillow, that pillow was just hot and sweaty and very uncomfortable. My head felt like it was going to explode and it was so hot and I was so tired and exhausted noise was overwhelming everything was overwhelming and I constantly felt devastated that I was in that position and devastated that I was the cause of so much drama I've mentioned that my family were from northeast Victoria so I was very aware that they were using petrol a lot of money for petrol to get down to Melbourne that stressed me out a lot you've got an immediate perception of being a burden even yes. though you're the, you're the one with the, you know, that suffered the stroke, surviving. Yeah, just. And yet you're concerned about how much petrol people might be burning or how much time they're taking out from their things. And that's quite a natural thing to consider, isn't it? That's right, yes. But, but no one was talking to you about it. No. Saying it was okay. No one mm. probably even recognised that I might have been thinking that. As you've touched on the word burden, yeah, that's what we learned in nursing, that mm. stroke was a burden on society. So I went into my stroke going, I'm a big burden. I've got to, I've got to get better as soon as possible so I'm not a burden. What are those other thoughts? Because, you know, you were talking before about losing a baby only days before and were you uh, just left to your own thoughts in this regard? Was there any kind of addressing perhaps what you might have needed or been thinking how you felt at that time? No, no, there wasn't. And uh, as far as how I felt inside, it was like a, if I could do a visual here, because I used visualisation a lot mm. uh, to keep me present in the world. <laughs> the visual I had was if, if you can picture the artwork, The Scream, which was a very well-known artwork, also a high-pitched horror movie screen. Mm. That's what it felt like going on in the core of my stomach the whole time. The discomfort from the very um, intensive personal care that I needed, it was so uncomfortable, so embarrassing. I was young. Uh, there was no comfort given for any of the, um, I guess, extreme measures needed to keep someone alive when they're in that position. So the there was a sort of a care in a, in a, in a clinical sense and in a, almost like a, a mechanical or a physiological sense, but you weren't getting that emotional or even spiritual care and support that you could have used. No, I wasn't. 
like I've said, I was young and I needed, as, as devastating as all of this is, mm-hmm. I also took the, the humorous side. Uh, for example, people seem to want to repeat things to me repeatedly just in case I'd forgotten and I didn't forget. I. <laughs> you were very focused on what they were saying. I was very focused on what they were saying. If I was told that I was going to have a bath tomorrow, I remembered that I was going to have a bath tomorrow. It's like, put me in that bath now. I, When there were multiple people coming in and telling me that I was going to have my first bath, I was lying in bed thinking, let's just put it on the hospital PA system that Sue's going to have a bath tomorrow because I had to swing things around to give me some sort of sense of lightheartedness and joy about anything. Yes, so sometimes it might have felt like you were more part of someone's to-do list than um, someone that was getting the care and support they kind of needed. Exactly, exactly. And and I was one of four people in the ward and it's not like a lot of care and attention was given to anybody really. It was the bare minimal to keep people alive. Mm. What pulled you through this? Prior to my stroke, I had a, a strong work ethic I began work at full-time work at 16, and so I felt like I was a contributor to the community, participant in the community. I think that my desire to just continue along that path, for this to be seen as a part of my life story, mm. I didn't see it as anything unusual, really. <laughs> that well. might sound strange, but I honestly didn't. It was like, okay, this has happened. And it's up to me, just as long as I'm involved in the decision-making about me and the communication with me rather than about me all the time or just to me. Yes. So, Sue, we've heard what it was like for you in the occurrence of your stroke and immediate survival and the start of your recovery um, from the stroke, but is there anything you'd like listeners to particularly take away from your story in terms of their approach or their awareness? To be aware that stroke can and does affect young people and that it's not necessarily because of lifestyle choices. There's many reasons why people have strokes. And to um, continue to, if, if stroke has affected their life in any way as a survivor or as a family member, then to look at the current content that is out there to help address isolation and disability and to do that because for a community to really embrace everybody, then people who have had traumatic events such as strokes and being impacted by disability need to be included as well. We need to remember that a stroke survivor doesn't stop, stop being a person. They were a person before the stroke. They're a person immediately thereafter and forever. Yes, that's right. And that they would still have hopes and dreams uh, for their future. And a desire to be connected with others. That's right. So, Sue, that's an incredibly intense and devastating experience to to live through. Are there some lighter moments that you can share that in your consciousness you became aware of the the dark humour perhaps. Yes, a dark humour is a great way of putting it. Yes, from my bed I had a limited view from the pillow. I would look at the brick wall just outside my hospital window 
And I would think about things like, oh, when was this hospital built? What happened to the people who were building it? Did they have any workplace accidents? How did that affect their families? Like my mind was my entertainment. So I did visualise and imagine and remember and think bad things about nursing staff who may not have done their job as well as they could have been done. I had to somehow keep myself alive. One example, once I'd moved on from having a nasogastric tubing, which was liquid food. Mm -hmm. That sounds great. Yes. Not great. But I failed my first gag reflex. I had no gag reflex at all so I was assessed for how my gag reflex was I mm. failed the first one and can we just clarify that really in that context a gag reflex is what stops you from drowning is mm. that right mm. Mm. yeah and, and helps you swallow food yeah I was rather devastated to hear that I had no gag reflex <laughs> okay that's uh that's something to work on one of my first food memories was a three puree scoops of vegetables and it was beige white and great uh-huh. really Very appealing all the colors of the rainbow and uh everyone stood around me and commented on how terrible it looked and i was just <laughs> and you were expected to eat i it. had to eat it and uh you know i just wanted to throw it in their faces because mm. it's like well i've got no choice i look back on that time with me with a lot of care now and a lot of compassion and it took a lot of years to be able to do that it was hard to feel that i was a person Like you're saying, it was hard to feel connected to myself, but I can look back now at that hot, sweaty head on the pillow and stroke my forehead. I hear in all of this, you know, that you took the responsibility to sort of stay engaged with yourself and you were the one that had to kind of talk to yourself and entertain yourself in in the absence of that sort of little bit more overt communication. Yes. We'll get to that next week. We will get to that next week. Thanks very much, Sue. Okay, thanks, David. See you next time. See you next time. Thanks for listening to From the Pillow, Survival Mode. For more information on Sue and Moon River Turkey, visit moonriverturkey.com.au. This podcast was produced by Joy, Australia's Rainbow Community Media Organisation. For more information on Joy and Joy services, visit joy.org.au forward slash services. This episode is part of the Young Stroke podcast series created by Stroke Foundation's Young Stroke Project. Find out more by visiting youngstrokeproject.org.au. You can listen to dozens of other podcasts on our Stroke Recovery website, enableme.org.au. StrokeLine's allied health professionals can help you manage your health and live well. StrokeLine is a practical, free and confidential service. Call 1800 787 653 Monday to Friday, 9am to 5pm, Australian Eastern Standard Time, or email strokeline at strokefoundation.org.au. The advice given here is general in nature. Discuss your situation and needs with your healthcare professionals. The Young Stroke podcast series is presented by Australia's Stroke Foundation and funded by the Australian Government Department of Social Services.